This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. In the ongoing diagnosis of Donald Trump's sociopathy, the former president veers between two polarities. On most days, he is the delusional fucking nutbag, having convinced himself that he truly won the election. But on the others, he's become a con man, peddling nonsense because he sees his followers as fools and suckers. There are so many discrepancies, so many problems, and they've heard from so many people about the corruption and what took place. I bring this up in light of the Washington Post reporting that, and I quote, former President Donald Trump's political pack raised about $75 million in the first half of this year as he trumpeted the false notion that the 2020 election was stolen from him. But the group has not devoted funds to help finance the ongoing ballot review in Arizona or to push for similar endeavors in other states, according to people familiar with the finances. A whopping $75 million. That's how much former President Trump's political action committee raised in the first half of the year, partly through fundraising pitches like this one. Facebook ads that read, we need you to join the fight to secure our elections. While Trump has taken an intense interest in assorted post-election efforts, including the fucking ridiculous audit in Arizona, he hasn't devoted a cent that he's raised to fighting any of these endeavors. The presidency may be over, but the grift goes on. In the words of Jerry Maguire, show me the fucking money. Show me the money! If Trump's Save America PAC raised roughly $75 million in the first six months of the year, where's all the cash going? According to the Post's report, there are few limits on how it can spend its money, and it's paid for some of former president's travel, legal, and staff, along with other expenses. So basically, Trump is living off the fucking contributions. Much of the money, meanwhile, is just sitting in the bank, presumably to pay for Trump's future travel, legal costs, and staff, along with other expenses. The grift goes on. Um, uh, who is surprised that, that Donald Trump uh, raised all that money and is using it um, himself, is, is using it selfishly? The most selfish person we've ever seen in our public life. Um, and, and, and it's all about the money. Uh, and so um, you, you, you might feel sorry for the people who are, uh, who are giving all this money, thinking that it is going to fight this imaginary voter fraud when, in fact, it's, it's going to pay for Trump's staff and his travel and whatever else. Um, but uh, they should know by now uh, that that's what, what, was, what would inevitably happen. And um, that's, that's who he is. If this sounds vaguely familiar, there's a good reason for that. In December, about a month after Election Day in 2020, Politico ran this memorable report, and I quote, President Donald Trump has been on a relentless, misleading, and highly lucrative fundraising drive since losing re-election, telling supporters that they can help overturn the results if they donate while directing the bulk of the cash to his newest political group instead of the entities fighting in court. Donald Trump is under fire for conning over $100 million from his most loyal supporters. The New York Times busting his re-election campaign for a scheme mixing some of Trump's oldest con artist tricks with the desperation in a general election where he was clearly trailing Biden in the polls and in the money race. So let's rewind for a moment to those wacky post-election days of Four Seasons total landscaping 
Sydney released the Kraken Powell and stinking Rudy Giuliani getting laughed out of courtrooms across the country. It was the fucking worst political team money could buy. A collection of losers unrivaled in American politics. Nevertheless, Trump's operation pushed an avalanche of lies about the Republicans' defeat, telling unsuspecting donors that their money would go toward challenging the election results that the then-president falsely claimed were illegitimate. The pitches were incredibly successful, at least insofar as they raised an enormous amount of money. I mean, over $200 million to be exact. So I can't help but be just slightly bewildered. And I'll win again. That your followers stick with you, whatever the hell you do. No matter how hard you screw them, they won't quit. Girl, your presidency's a mess, your policies are BS, but they let you get away with it. Cause they're suckers for you. I guess it pays to be conniving and cunning Cause they're suckers for you Yeah, keep blowing dog whistles and watch them come running Cause they're suckers for all of the criminal shame Worthy things that you do merely the latest in a series of Trump grifts. The money wasn't going towards pointless recounts, silly audits, and hapless lawsuits. Rather, most of the funds went to the Save America PAC, derided by campaign finance experts as essentially a type of slush fund with few restrictions on how the money they raised can be spent. When Trump World promised donors that their money would go toward defending Republican voting totals, it was nothing but a fucking scam, which was exposed to the public. That all unfolded while Trump was still in office, but it barely measured a blip because his delusional nonsense created a daily sideshow of insanity that drowned out anything else. Only now that he's out of office, he's doing the same thing cheating his followers again. If it sounds familiar, almost exhaustingly so, it's literally the playbook for the now infamous Trump University, which, remember, was a business that gave out business advice, which went out of business. Embarrassing. And like so many cons, it didn't prey on Donald Trump's critics or his detractors or the journalists he wants to give a hard time. No, it focused squarely on the people who like Trump enough to become his own financial Anybody who knows Donald Trump can clearly see what's happening here. Save America is nothing more than another grift in a long line of Trump grifts. Think about Trump University, Trump stakes, Trump mattresses. At Trump University, we teach success. That's what it's all about. We're going to teach you better than the business schools are going to teach you. I think the biggest step towards success is going to be sign up at Trump University. Students say Trump University didn't deliver. Today, walking away with a $25 million settlement, the university used high-pressure sales tactics and never taught real estate success. Well, Save America is just that. It's a means for Trump to steal large sums of money from his followers. The difference now is that Trump needs this money to survive. It's literally fueling his entire operation. With his business under indictment, his lenders circling multiple indictments, not to mention the very good possibility that Trump himself could end up in prison, there is not a lot of other revenue coming through the door. And let me tell you, lawyers, even the shitty ones working for Donald Trump, are fucking expensive. 
On top of that, Trump's monthly nut must be exorbitant. The man isn't flying spirit air with his followers. It costs a fortune to be Donald Trump, and he needs this money to keep coming through the door. The only way that's guaranteed is for him to continue to rile up his base and fucking lie about the election. The moment he stops is when the money stops. Mention the big lie, good for Trump's bottom line, serious consequences for voters and for our democracy. 18 states have passed 30 laws curbing ballot access, six states shortening the window to apply for a mail-in ballot, four curbing the use of drop boxes, two states cutting back on early voting hours. So if you're wondering if he's a delusional maniac or just a con man out to make a quick buck from his followers, it's irrelevant at this point. The lie has become big business. But to answer your question, he is incredibly fucking delusional and most likely insane. He is also a con man. I think he believes what he says, but also has no problem stealing from his followers because that's what Trump does. He hates paying for anything. So why would he start now? Business bad? Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. Trump is going to need all of this money he's collected and a whole lot more if his good buddy Tom Brock flips or testifies against Trump to reduce some of the time that he's facing. Barack, the chairman of Trump's inaugural committee, was charged in a seven-count indictment with acting as an agent of the UAE between April of 2016 and April of 2018, using his position to influence American foreign policy on behalf of his clients. Tom Barrack, who chaired former President Donald Trump's 2017 inaugural committee, was arrested yesterday for acting as an agent of the United Arab Emirates without registering as a foreign agent. He's accused of influencing the foreign policy positions of the campaign and administration between April of 2016 and April of 2018. This is according to the Justice Department. According to the allegations in the Barack indictment, while an advisor to the Emirates was offering the Trump campaign election help, an Emirati agent was also shaping Trump's foreign policy even inserting the country's preferred language into one of the candidate's speeches. Prosecutors say that Barack told a high-level figure they call Emirati official number two that he had staffed the Trump campaign. Now, it was Barack who recommended Paul Manafort later to be convicted on multiple felonies to Trump. When an Emirati official asked Barack if he had information about senior Trump appointees, Tom allegedly replied, I do and said they should talk by phone. He is said to have traveled to the Emirates to strategize with its leadership about what they wanted from the administration during its first 100 days, first six months, first year, and first term. The seven-count grand jury indictment says Barrack used his friendship with Donald Trump to get language inserted into the then-candidate's energy speech in 2016 about the importance of working with, quote, our Gulf allies on behalf of the Emiratis. It also says Barrack provided UAE government officials with, quote, sensitive non-public information about the positions of multiple senior United States government officials with respect to the Qatari blockade conducted by the UAE and other Middle Eastern countries. This is not just what prosecutors call a paperwork violation, meaning Barack failed to disclose his position as a foreign agent or lobbyist. 
This guy was essentially a fucking spy for hire. Barack's firm raised $1.5 billion for essentially opening up the Trump administration to the Emirates. Barack is facing serious prison time, and the pressure on him to cooperate will be intense. The other thing that I see is the potential for cooperation. We know that the Eastern District of New York is also investigating fraud in the Trump inaugural campaign, which Tom Barrett uh, shared. And so he has the opportunity here uh, to come in and share information with prosecutors about that investigation if he wants to work off some of this time. The question is, what will they want him for? Ivanka and Don Jr. are already under investigation for misleading prosecutors in a deposition about the inauguration's malfeasance. Barack could simply rat the kids out, which would start a chain of events that would effectively end the Trump family. So sayonara, I hope you like making fucking license plates, Don. And Eric, you may want to bulk up a bit. And Ivanka, orange is definitely not the new black, but you'll find that out for yourself soon enough. What's in his head could yield a goldmine for prosecutors. It's ironic that in the end, it won't necessarily be Trump's enemies who tear him down, but his closest friends. But as the saying goes, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Michael Bender, has literally written the book on Donald Trump's disastrous final year in office entitled, Frankly, We Did Win the Election. The book has quickly captured the zeitgeist and been the catalyst for multiple scoops for its shocking revelations. Interweaving fly-on-the-wall accounts of White House meetings with profiles of front-row Joes who traveled across the country to attend Trump rallies, Bender covers the period from the Trump's first impeachment in December of 2019 through his second acquittal in February of 2021. Along the way, Bender sheds light on internal rivalries over the responses to the coronavirus pandemic documents how cavalier attitudes towards health and safety measures helped spread COVID-19 in the White House, delivers pointed assessments of administration members, including Mike Pence. It was sometimes difficult to tell where his loyalty ended and his subservience began, and notes the near-constant flow of leaked information to the press. Throughout, he paints a credible portrait of how a lack of coordination and Trump's own preference for chaos as an operating principle doomed the re-election bid. For the past several weeks, the drip, drip, drip of revelations from Bender's book have included reports of Trump telling John Kelly, then White House Chief of Staff, that Hitler did a lot of good things. Bender also writes of Trump urging the military to beat the fuck out of protesters for racial justice and to crack their skulls. I don't want to spoil any more of the book, but we're incredibly fortunate to have him on Mea Culpa. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so Michael, we know that Trump sat for 22 different interviews connected to a slew of books coming out about his presidency, including your incredible book. Uh, frankly, we did win the election. 
Now, knowing how he operates, he probably figured that he could somehow charm you and steer the direction of the book because that's how he that's how he thinks. What was the case when you sat down with him at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. So I sat down with him twice, um, once in March and once in May. And and of course, that's absolutely why he had me down and everyone else's um, is he, he wants to uh, at, at best uh, you know, uh, control the, the, the story of the book, uh, and at least, uh, get his voice in, inject his voice into the, into the narrative. And, um, you know, that was the case with me too. I mean, I caught him at a, at a moment of transition. Uh, I write in the book that it was, uh, this, this moment between, you know, his time as leader of the free world, what he was sort of transitioning into, which, which was more of uh, the king of Mar-a-Lago uh, the king of Palm beach, he and he was successful to a degree, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the epilogue of the book is is the scene at Mar-a-Lago um, when I was down there. He invited me to dinner after the first interview, and it is this. Um, it, it was just this amazing scene where uh, all of his guests are seated for dinner out on the terrace. Uh, you know, whatever whatever that is, a few dozen tables or so, and his table's in the middle of it all. You know, sort of separated by a velvet rope. And he comes, he comes in after everybody is, is, you know, has, is seated. Um, and as soon as he walks into, under the terrace, there's a huge standing ovation. Right. And, um, the get, some of the guests leave during dinner and stop by his table and say hello. And then, um, when Trump gets up at the end of dinner, there's another huge resounding applause, but this time everybody's had, you know, a drink or two into it. And it does, you know, it starts to really, um, take on the feel of more of, of, of his own kind of private campaign rally, right? This is like the, uh, the Palm beach version of a, of, of a mega, of a mega Trump rally. Yeah. Well, they're also very thankful, which is why that they stand up and they applaud for him. They're thankful that he didn't bring Rudy <laughs> so that he didn't stink up the whole fucking place with his farting. Right. And the fact that Donald didn't choke over probably, I bet you he had steak when, when you were there with him having dinner. Am I correct? Uh, you know that that, that is a, that's a very good bet, Michael. You, you, you know him well, um, and yeah, I mean these are, these people do. You know, they, they're on one hand they are dues-paying members, right? And they're so they're not exactly you know friends in the traditional sense, or you know that that you or I would think of. But I remember even from the 2016 campaign, and you know he'd, he'd have election nights right during all those primary nights at his different resorts, and invite all the club members from their different resorts to the primary night. And they were all rooting for him. And I just remember that um, uh, how many people would make these analogies to me of like, uh, you know, he's running for president and he's doing all of these things. But yet he was just here this afternoon and, and checking on the, you know, uh, on how the on how well the, the, the greens have been manicured and wanting to know why the fairways were, you know, weren't up to his uh, stead. We're dry. We're we're dried out, and that they hadn't been yeah, aerated. Yeah, exactly. Yet. Like on one hand, I mean, was, or or how come? His, yeah, on one hand, they were all impressed. <laughs> or how come his, he, was, uh, he, was, he was he was juggling both things? But I just remember being stunned that someone running for president would 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 you know bother to take the time to not outsource that, those sorts of uh, you know decisions about you know maintenance of the golf course. 
I mean, I heard one guy turn around and he was uh, with one of the golf courses. Trump came in and he was angry about why there weren't MAGA hats or MAGA T-shirts and other sort of swag, you know, at the various <laughs> different locations while the guy is sitting there and running for the presidency. I mean, you have to admit, it's a very different type of presidency than any other presidency in history. Oh, yeah. No, no question about it. I mean, that was why... Um that was why he was loved and that was why he was hated. Right. I mean, both sides, both sides of the coin there. And that was so obvious from, uh, from the, from the first day. And and really one of the things I try to do in this book is, um, you know, the, the story is, is 2020 and, and, and kind of the bookends of this book are the first impeach starts with the first impeachment and ends with the second impeachment. But I tried to inject, uh, um, my experiences and my, uh, you know, in, in context that I was around for in 2016 and certainly the four years, the first few years of the White House into the, you know, in, into the backstory of this book. Hey, Michael, who set up the meeting with you and Trump? Was that done through Jared? Was it done through Madeline Westerhout? Who set up the meeting for oh, this um, the, uh, book? The interviews? The, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Jason Miller was doing, it was doing press for him um, after, after the, after the campaign, post presidency, so it's mostly through, and that's who you set it up with. Yeah, mostly. I mean, you, you know how it goes in Trump world that like there's never really there's never you can never rely on one way in, right? So uh, f- so for both of them, I had to make sure that that multiple people, you know, were were, were letting him know and um, that I was interested and in, in working on the book. And I mean, heck, he 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 had he had known about this book uh, for the better part of a year. I mean. Um, the first time I brought this book up to him was when Sarah Sanders was press secretary, Michael. And then it was it, then it was just like a series of requests for the better part of a year. In fact, I, I sat with him in, in June of 2020 in the Oval Office during an interview for the Wall Street Journal. And he asked me, you know, I heard you're working on this book. And I told him what it, what, what it was going to be and what I was um, interested in. And uh, he turned to his press team and said, hey, you know, set, set some stuff up. I'd like to talk to him, you know, uh, during the campaign. And of course, that just never, never happened. And it wasn't until the eleventh hour, as I'm facing deadline, that he, um, for the book that he that he brought me down, and decided to talk. Did you tell him that the name of the book would be "Frankly, We Did Win the Election"? I did the second time, yeah. Yeah, and that's why he sat down with you because he thought that the book was going to be a pro-Trump book. Frankly, right? We did win the election. Something that he thought was going to be puffing for him which is and for and for him he would sit down with anybody he'd sit down with satan you know if satan was going to write a book about how great donald trump is michael let me ask you this in story after story and we hear from time and again that staffers were horrified or in disbelief now we now know the steps general milley took to prevent what he saw as a potential coup my question, though, is amidst all of these anecdotes, mm-hmm. nobody did anything at the time to stop the president. Why do you think they didn't get together and invoke the 25th Amendment or just simply testify in Trump's impeachment trial if they were truly that appalled and that afraid that he was going to do what is written in your book? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair to a, a degree why, these, why some of these folks haven't spoken out sooner. Or, or um, I do think that there are... I think it's a, sort of a complicated question here. One is, is this is definitely uh, what surprised me during the book, uh, the reporting of the book, the um, the writing of this book was, was how many people around Trump um, were not 
necessarily worried about the chaos, right? I mean, the, the sort of chaos of the Trump administration is a story we we know pretty well. But 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 what struck me was how many people thought he was dangerous. He had become dangerous for the country, um, and you know, uh, uh, they to a degree, all of them thought that they were the guardrails, right? To a degree, all of them thought that they were the ones who were the truth tellers to Trump. But when you start scratching the surface a little bit, when you start doing the reporting and and talking to other people who are in the room, you know, no one really just told Trump no, right? Which is a hard thing to do for any president. Anyone, any, you get that close to like the most powerful uh, seat in the a political seat in the world, it, it's hard to tell that person no. It's hard to tell that person they're wrong. Um, but what happened was, uh, you know. I'll give the example in the book of, which is in the book of, of, of Mike Pence talking to Trump ahead of January 6th. And, uh, and Pence tells Trump, you know, I don't think I have the constitutional authority to overturn these results, but uh, whatever your legal team comes up with, I'll, I'll take a look at. Well, t- what Trump hears is the second part of that and latches on to the second part of that and thinks that, that, that Pence is, um, that he has a chance to, uh, you know, convince Pence otherwise. So in the book, I think uh, there's a couple of characters who who come pretty close to being, you know, not brick walls, but but more guardrails with Trump. And that's that's General Milley, uh, you know, to a degree. Ronna McDaniel is one, um, you know, she is uh, she doesn't hesitate, you know, on multiple occasions to tell Trump uh, what she thinks the right thing to do is on covid. Uh, what she thinks the right thing to do is, on you know, uh, on the election results and, and some of these things. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's 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 no one here that is is sort of jumping up and down and trying to and you know alert the world to what what's going on inside the Oval Office. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Hunger Games, The Matrix, Pain and Gain, GI Joe, Retaliation, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Jennifer Lawrence, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. You know, I used to do that a lot. Mm-hmm. I used to have these back and forth. Um, I don't even want to call them conversations because with Trump, it's not a conversation. It's a one-way discussion, mm-hmm. like sitting in an auditorium and being, um, you know, before a professor, mm-hmm. uh, right, at, at a university or something, <laughs> where he would ask me my thoughts. And if my thoughts weren't exactly on line with his. We would go with the back and forth. There were some things that I just absolutely disagreed with him on, and I told him that I would not partake in it. Uh, and it had nothing to do with politics. This had to do with business. Mm-hmm. But if Donald Trump didn't like your answer, mm-hmm. five different people, I'll give you an example. I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. There was an investigation that was being conducted against the Trump organization, And one of the lawyers in the company went ahead and provided all the documentation that was requested of him by the, um, you know, by the agency under subpoena. And so he submitted everything. 
Trump didn't believe that he had to. Mm. He didn't believe that he had to give them everything based upon the search terms. Mm. And the stuff that was really damaging, he said, why don't you fucking shred it? Why don't you just not give it to them? Jeez. Delete it from the computers. This is a true story. And he goes, why don't you just delete it? And the guy said to him, you can't do that. He goes, it's criminal. And he went to another lawyer at the firm. And he asked, what did you? He goes, I would turn it over too. And then he came to me, fucking furious. You know, he's got that look on his face. And I use this expression, this analogy all the time, like somebody that just sucked on a lemon mm. and someone farted in their face, you know, that pucker mm. that he would get. And he was so angry. Mike, he was so angry. What would you do, Michael? And I said to him, I would have turned it over also because not to, right? You lose your law license, you yeah. go to prison. I said, you know, you can't. It's obstruction of justice. You can't do that. No. And he said, I spoke to somebody that said you didn't have to do it. Now, he didn't speak to anybody. Yeah. He spoke to John Barron, his alter ego, <laughs> who told him he didn't have to. Or he spoke to a doorman who's afraid to tell him, you know, that, no, you really do have to do that. And that's what he would base his decision on, what he thought in the first place. And then he would run with it. And he, would, and he tormented this lawyer mm. for months upon months upon months. And that's, that's a perfect example Ronna Romney did not, McDaniels did not ever question Donald Trump. Mm. He, she's fucking replaceable in mm -hmm. a heartbeat. And she knows the second that she crosses him the wrong way, he'll just put somebody else in there because it is Donald Trump's party. It's not the GOP. It's not Ronna R Romney McDaniels. She's not the one that went out and raised the money. The rest of us did. She just took the credit as being the person who was running the RNC. But she's no better than anybody else, and he knows it. And, you know, they were making more money with these small-dollar donations on the regular basis, and she was just sort of the coordinator, the quarterback. She, if she told you that she turned around ever and told him no, well, she's lying. But, you know, when, when, I, when I think— You knew Rana pretty well. I mean, you were doing—you were— uh... Yeah, uh, uh, a pretty important fundraiser for the party there for a while, right? Yeah, I raised, um, I don't know, $14, 18000000 million, whatever it was. It got to a point that I didn't even want the, the congratulations on bringing in this million or that mm -hmm. million. It didn't matter to me. It's not like I'm taking a piece of it. This was all for whether it was for the campaign or for the inaugural fund. I was doing it because I, that was my job. I was the vice chair of the RNC Finance um, division yeah, yeah. Uh, under under Steve Wynn with Elliot Broidy and Lou DeJoy and, and so on. And we raised $140 million and so on. Yeah. And what was your, I have to be honest, yeah, when ahead. I was when I was the vice chair, yeah. I was actually I, I was a registered Democrat. Mm. You know, at the time, I may have been the first Democrat to be a vice chair of the RNC finance, I think that's but I never had any bet. regard. Yeah. Yeah, I never had any regard for Ron, uh, for Rana. I didn't find her to be efficient. I don't find her to be smart. I find her to be just conniving. Why? Why do you say that? Well, she's very conniving because she talks behind everybody's back, mm. and she, you know, she tried to lead people away from doing certain things. But then again, when those ended up happening anyway, because Trump wanted them to happen, she would stand up and take all the accolades for it. So she's just not a, I, I just didn't find her to be of really significant consequence mm. as it raised. We would have raised the money if she was there or not. Yeah. Now, you know, I just also wanted to say in, in your book, mm -hmm. 
I won't criticize the book at all. I think the book is very, very well done. But the criticism that I have uh, are really the statements made by people who you interviewed. And we could just start with General Milley. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the things that I've talked about on this podcast with another um, with another guest is the fact that I believe that he had an obligation. First of all, he's a general. Second of all, he was part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. For God's sakes, if you believe that the president of the United States of America is looking to create a coup, that he's trying to create an autocracy out of our country, and the first person that you really give all this information to Mm -hmm. is you, Mm -hmm. I have a real problem with that. I believe he has an obligation to not just represent his position in the military— but also to represent the United States of America and to uphold the Constitution. Yeah, I, well, th- that that detail actually was in a different book. I, um, I, uh, so I kind of don't want to really um, weigh in on on that. I mean, what, what the, the things that I was reporting about Millie were, were, were conversations that I was told uh, happened between Trump and Millie that other people in the room could um, could verify, right? I, I didn't know. Um, like Millie may well have thought that there was a coup underway. I I don't I, I don't know that I I, I didn't I didn't verify that. I did verify things that you know when, when Trump was telling Millie uh, and others that he wanted Americans shot, right? I mean that he wanted to shoot Americans who were peacefully protesting uh, civil justice abuses. Um, that was something that he said repeatedly. Something he said in front of multiple people, um, and um, you know pretty. Uh, pretty shocking, right? I mean, uh, uh, when it came to Millie, the I reported the um, again another scene that was viewed by multiple people where um, he told Stephen Miller to shut the fuck up over um, Miller's characterization that 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 American cities were burning. You know, Millie had the data, um, and uh, you know, the understanding that that wasn't actually the case, and that that was and that what Miller was trying to do is just goose the president. And when, when Millie sits there in the Oval Office and, and points to the portrait of Abraham Lincoln over the shoulder of Trump and, and says, that guy, that guy, Mr. President, had an insurrection. What we have is a protest. So those are some of the scenes that, um, uh, you know, again, like when I was um, there, there's nothing in this book that's single sourced. I didn't take anybody's word for what happened. Uh, everything's double checked uh, at least at least once, you know, we, so 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 verified by multiple people. Uh, no, let me be very clear, Mike. I'm not questioning your sourcing. Mm-hmm. I'm not questioning as I st- as I started my statement. Yeah, I will not criticize the book at all. Right. Mm-hmm. What I what I, my criticism is to Millie, who I believe had an obligation if he truly believed that the president was attempting a coup or doing something which is fundamentally contrary to the Constitution Mm -hmm. of the United States. I believe that he is obligated pursuant to law in order to report it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sitting there and saying, well, I thought I did. Yeah, that's listen, this guy's a general. You know, I expect a whole lot more for him. And the fact that Trump balled out Stephen Miller, I've seen him do it many times. (laughs) Listen, nobody is above Trump's wrath. 
Not me, not Melania, not the kids, not Don, Ivanka, Eric, Jared. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, when he used to ball out rancid penis in the in the Oval <laughs> Office or in his office before, you know, they moved into into the White House. That's Wait, just even, who Trump is. Michael, even Ivanka, you've seen him. You've seen him go uh, go berserk on Ivanka. Yeah, people have Mike. Jeez, jeez, Mike, people have this very, very distorted perception of mm-hmm. their relationship that, OK, he may think she's hot and all and that if he was if she wasn't his daughter, he'd marry her. That sick fuck that he is. Now, he turned around in front of all of us. He said, I'll fire your ass as I would fire anybody mm-hmm. else's. That's just one, you know, of the many, many. Now, he was hardest yeah. on Don Jr., but don't think Ivanka escaped everything. It's not true. He didn't hold her in any higher esteem than anybody else. Maybe more than Don and Eric, right? Because they're just fucking stupid. And she's she ain't so bright herself. She's just well prepared. It's a big difference. But he would fire her as fast as he mm-hmm. would fire anybody. And, you know, look, he only cares about himself. So, you know, there's just so much that I can... Talk about her, mm-hmm. uh, meaning Ivanka, before you turn around and you, know, you just have to take, you know, mm-hmm. a Tums or something because the whole the whole thing is just, you know, it, it's just nauseating and upsets your stomach. Mm-hmm. But I did read, Michael, in mm-hmm. uh, Politico that Trump knew the Hitler quote was going to be in the book and that he mm-hmm. threatened you by saying it was mm-hmm. defamatory. Did anything come of that threat now that it's out in print? Or is it just sort of, yeah. you know, like Rudy's <laughs> fart in the wind? No, uh, you know, he there, nothing has come of that since since the book has come out. He has a he has attacked the book and he's he, he's called he said that the, that the quote isn't true. But Michael, you know what he the president knows what, everything that was in the book. I mean, I'm, uh, I I work for the Wall Street Journal. I've covered him for four years. You know, there's nothing in this book that would, was going to surprise him or any other, or any other people who are mentioned in this book as well. Um, that's not the way I, I, I operate. Um, and everyone gets a chance to, uh, you know, to, to, de- to defend themselves or give their side of the story. Uh, you know, what, what, what Trump knows though, is that, um, is how many people I talked to for this book. And he's very aware that people who don't normally talk to journalists talk to me for this book. And that's, that's what he's concerned about. That's what he's been, um, you know, that's what he's lashing out at, at when he when he singles out this book and me in particular. Yeah. Well, he's lashing out because it's not mm-hmm. flattering to him because it makes him look, you know, like what he is, which is a racist. And I'll tell you, I'm going to the same time that we put out this mm-hmm. this podcast. I have in his handwriting a document that he had retweeted someone who was either a murderer, racist, murderer, something like that with positive accolades. And all of a sudden, a writer ends up writing about this story and about Trump, you know, uh, retweeting it and so on. And in his handwriting, it says, Michael, call this guy, scare him with a lawsuit, threaten and scare him with a lawsuit with the big D on it, Mm. the bottom, right? And that's what he that's what he wants me to do, which is no different than what he was basically saying to you. The only problem is he didn't have a Michael Mm. Cohen anymore in order to sit there and to call you up and to say, I'm going to sue you for defamation, to which 
you know, I would then have probably used the Tim O'Brien case, right? Which he ended up losing, yeah. but who wants to get involved in a lawsuit? That's well, how, how we you, used how, to how, stop how, some of these. But I am so, oh. I'm so thankful, Michael, that you kept it in the book and that you did not allow him to bully you. Yeah, I mean, my sourcing is rock solid on this, Michael. And I could, t- you know, and, 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 and I could tell that that's what, um, you know, Trump was was trying to just push me off of this more than more than deny it actually happened. And you know, there there multiple people are aware of this conversation. Um, and um, and like I said, there is um, the, the sourcing on this is rock solid. Although I, I am curious, had you still been uh, you know Trump's guy, and he, what would you what, what would that have sounded like if uh, had I gotten a call from Michael Cohen? Uh, threatening, uh, threatening me with, um, you know, uh, a lawsuit or, or trying to trying to get me to get this out of the book. <laughs> so earlier on, you know, one of the things I would have said to you is that I have an unlimited expense account as it relates to litigation, mm-hmm. especially something as significant as you, Michael, making defamatory statements about Donald Trump uh, quoting Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler. Right. So I would just strongly suggest that you consider redacting that portion of the page, removing the quote. And I don't care if you want to put somebody else's quote in, but not a Hitler quote. And understanding, of course, that Hitler was possibly maybe second to Donald Trump or Trumping second to Hitler, the most despicable human being ever created, you know, ever walking, walking this this earth. Um, and that, that's what I that's what I say. You probably don't need the litigation right now. And if you with the yeah. Wall Street Journal, obviously, we're going to bring the Wall Street Journal in and you may win and you may or you may lose. But any which way that happens, it's going to cost you millions of dollars in the defense. And if by chance that you do lose. Right. Um, it's going to wipe you out completely. So those would be the sort of angles that I would take. And you would be yeah. shocked because most of the most of the papers, the newspapers, they don't really do financially mm-hmm. well. And so the last thing that they want is litigation by a madman who gave me a unlimited expense account in order to make stuff like this yeah. go away. That's pretty good. I mean, and that's where that's where. It, oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, listen, you have to be willing to spend the yeah. money. And as I would have said to you, we spent over a million dollars on the Tim O'Brien oh, case. New York Times at that point in time spent substantially more than that. Don't forget, a million dollars in-house counsel is not the same as you having to hire mm-hmm. defense counsel at $1,000 to $1,500 an hour. You know, that, that 1500 adds up real fast. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again. But after the year we've all had, getting back to feeling normal takes time. My journey back to the world started with being released from prison into home confinement. The only way I got through it was to prioritize my mental health and realize that it was going to take some time. If you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice that we need. In my case, nothing they said related to what I was going through. 
Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone. But over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist and schedule live video sessions, all from the comfort of your device. You can start messaging your therapist the same day that you sign up. Whether you're a parent, student, millennial, or just someone having a hard day, Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy, in addition to medication prescription services. Set goals with your therapist, and they can help make sure that you're really progressing. Talkspace works around your schedule, at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app. Schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapists from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue. Thousands of licensed therapists are available for you to match with. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more, to help you start feeling better today. So start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code COHEN. That's $100 off when you use promo code COHEN at Talkspace.com. But I do want to say, Mike, that your book weaves its narrative around mm-hmm. the so-called front row yeah. Joes. And these are the Trump diehards who traveled stupidly to every rally as well as attended the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now, how would you describe their allegiance to the former president? And in what ways did the former president manipulate and use them for his own purpose? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about the front row Joes here, Michael. I do think that this is... Um one of the unique things about this book. And I do think that that what makes this book different from not just the thing, not just the other books that are coming out this year, but really any Trump book to date is, you know, we've touched on some of the behind the scenes stories in the Oval Office. I go behind the curtain quite a bit on the $2 billion campaign um, that was still kind of chasing its tail at the end of the race, uh, trying to catch Biden. One of the things I'm most proud of is, is I'm essentially embedded for two years with with these front row joes, with, with some of Trump's most loyal rally goers, and these these folks spent, have been to thirty, forty, really no joke, fifty Trump rallies, and I try to understand what about them and what about the president um, kept them coming back time and time again. You know, it, it's interesting. These these are folks who um, a lot of them have never been involved in politics before. Uh, some of them voted for Obama, got kind of caught up in that in, in the in Obama's. Uh, enthusiasm and celebrity, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, and Obama also came from a similar uh, point of view on, on foreign interventionalism, right? Like the, the ending the endless wars was one of one of, one of Obama's um, uh, items on his to-do list as well. But these are folks who, you know, uh, retired or, or, or nearing retirement age. They, they're, they don't have much family, right? They either didn't have kids or maybe estranged from their families and what, what happened is they met other people like them, right? And they and they and they formed their own community and friendships and and more, right? There, I, I know some who um, 
had married, met each other and married and, and ultimately divorced by the, by the end of the administration. But the point being, they, they shared hotel rooms, right? They stopped at each other's houses on the road. Uh, and it was something bigger than Trump. It was, it, it, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, their, their lives became richer and fuller because of Trump, because of this movement. But as you allude to, they're, they're ultimately misled here. And uh, their lives become smaller. And what do I mean? I mean, uh, I'm talking about Randall from Minnesota, who who is so sick. He's over. He's in his 60s. He's overweight. Uh, he's a smoker. He knows what the risks of COVID are, but he won't get tested because he's afraid. He, because he doesn't want to add to the numbers under Trump. Um, you know, uh, uh, they they turn on each other over who wants to wear a mask. Libby's uh, husband is is battling cancer. She wants to wear a mask. She she wants to socially distance, and she's mocked for it. Um, you know, for for trying to take care of her family instead of um, you know what, what is viewed as um, you know uh, being disloyal to Trump. And then you know all the way till January, all the way to the election, right? I mean, the, the election is called on uh, on November seventh uh, by Fox News and others, right? Fox called Arizona correctly on on, on election night, and p- these people turn off Fox News. Right. I mean, what had been the kind of background noise of their life, they, they, they turn it off. And now they're uh, you know, and that's what I mean by their, their world's getting smaller. They're 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 reading less news. They're only on their own Facebook pages. Their their, their friendship groups have become smaller again because uh, of these this kind of loyalty test and these litmus tests on, on, on your allegiance to Trump. And I just think that this is um, one of the most salient pieces of the threads through the book, because um Trump is still drawing thousands of people, right? He drew, drew thousands to a rally in Ohio last month, thousands in more to Florida this month. Um, so, you know, if it's, it's important for, I mean, it's a pressing question for not just the Republican Party, but the country of, of why, why these people keep showing up even after what happened on January 6th, after, you know, more than 500 people have been arrested for, for, for what happened on January 6th. And yet Trump still kind of holds this, really powerful piece of the, the, the party in his hand. Well, I don't know why they show up, but those folks that you say that met during these racist rallies mm-hmm. that got together and they get married, I certainly pray to God that they never procreate because their spawn, you know, it was obviously nothing but, you know, fucking evil. And then you talked about, you know, being behind the curtain. You know, to me, it sounds like it's the perfect reference that I talk about a mm-hmm. lot on this podcast. Donald Trump is legitimately the Wizard of Oz. He is that little mm-hmm. guy who's standing behind the curtain, pulling all of the levers, pretending to be this big guy, breathing fire, all powerful, all knowing, mm-hmm. right? Wizard of Oz. But in fact, he's really just an ignorant, arrogant, bloviated asshole that somehow has managed to capture these 74 million Americans to vote for him. Now, while I will say that his appeal is dwindling, first of all, it's dwindling because of social media Mm -hmm. removing him uh, from it. So he doesn't have that ongoing, continuous um, Twitter attack on people. Uh, But it's also because I think people are sick and tired of hearing the same shit over and over. How many times can you watch the same movie? How many times could you watch Roadhouse before you turn around and you say, you know what, I've seen Roadhouse 50 times. It's about time that, you know, that they change the movie on AMC or one of these other stations. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, that's what that. Yeah, I mean, that's what um, 
got me interested in this question to begin with. I mean, it was uh, it was it was the summer of 2019. I, I'd been covering Trump for at that point three or four years. I'd been to dozens and dozens of rallies myself, of, you know, for for the Wall Street Journal to cover Trump. And Trump had brought us all down to Orlando for the big kickoff for his reelection campaign. And you know, I've been covering, I've been working in newspapers and journalism for 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 you know two dozen years. I'm covering politics for most of it. You know, campaign kickoffs are inflection points, right? And what that mean, what you know, what it means is that 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 the candidate is going to frame the race. They're going to you know give some sort of vision for what they're going to do in office. I'm um, sort of set the terms of how they're going to run. And we got you know it wasn't just me that you know hundreds of us from the media went down for this rally, and it was the same exact rally. I mean, it was this. It, I mean, it was the same thing that I've watched. Dozens and dozens of times before. And now the stage was a little bit bigger. The sound system was a little bit louder. Uh, all of the kids were there. Um, but I was, I mean, I was steaming. I was, I was really like upset that I'd been duped into coming down here and, 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 you know, tricked into like a, a, a covering just another rally that, that Trump had called it his kickoff. But then I took a breath and looked around. It's the Amway Arena, 20,000 seats. And I'll be damned, Michael, if every seat in that arena wasn't full, right? I mean, people that had, had sat through, uh, stood in line for hours or camped overnight in the in the humidity of the central Florida summer, uh, broken up only by, you know, pounding rain, uh, bouts of pounding rain in order it, to go into the arena for exactly that. I mean, that's why they showed up. They wanted to see this exact show, knew this was coming. And and we're excited for it. Right. I mean, there were ch- the, the uh, locker up chants were loud as I'd ever, ever heard them. The build a wall chants, you know, going on three, four years now, were loud as I'd ever heard them. So that was where I was like, wait a second. You know what? What is going on here that people keep coming to see the same show over and over and over again? So that's where I wanted to sort of take a step back and figure out kind of who these folks were as people um, and, uh, you know, get a little bit underneath, the, you know, the, the, the politics and um, or, you know, deeper beyond the politics and, and find out a little bit more of these about these people as humans and, you know, Americans instead of just, um, you know, Trump loyalists. Well, in recent weeks, we've seen an attempt by Trump to move beyond whitewashing January um, 6th to something akin mm-hmm. to glorifying it as a legitimate uprising in the face of a fraudulent election. Do you worry mm-hmm. or see any signs that this latest attempt will lead to more violence as Trump's most extreme followers, the one who's the one you know that we're talking about at like the Amway Arena, these twenty thousand plus type mm-hmm. type of people, will seem justified in their actions for causing this violence? I mean, it's a good question. It's a fair question. I mean, we've seen this where this leads, right? We've seen where this kind of rhetoric leads, which was on January sixth. I mean, it was only within the last couple of weeks that the sort of un, that unscalable fencing around the U S Capitol finally came down. Um, what seven months after, um, after the riots there, uh, you know, I think people are uh, law enforcement, other Americans, uh, you know, people are, 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 are understand what this, you know, what this kind of rhetoric leads to now and what, what is, um, you know what some of the what some of the the, the, the president's supporters are are capable of, and um, you know just the lengths that that some of them are willing to go, and um, you know, and we'll see if that subsides or not. I mean, we just had the first conviction, right? The first sentencing uh, for someone involved in uh, in in the riots a, a few days ago. 
you know, sentence, you know, a federal prison sentence, right? I mean, I think eight months in prison. I mean, that's mm-hmm. eight months. That's not, yeah. I mean, that's not nothing. Right. And, um, uh, it was shorter than they were, the prosecutors were, were looking for, but, but, but it'll be interesting to see if that, what kind of effect that has, um, when, when more of these, more of these folks who have been charged start getting sentenced and, and see if that, you know, starts to resonate at all. Um, not just with Americans, but, but, but Trump supporters. Yeah, well, let's not well, let's not forget, Mike, that we saw the same sort of rhetoric, the same sort of behavior back in 1933 as well. So people just have to keep in in mind that that's exactly what Donald Trump's playbook is. It's to sort of um, create that same hatred for, by one party against another party f- so that it benefits one individual. Right. Our supreme leader. Now, One of my favorite anecdotes in your book that shows how clueless Jared and Ivanka, and I'm going to now refer to them as Jailvanka, right, um, were to politics involves the Iowa caucus in February of Mm -hmm. 2016. And you set the scene of them arriving to a hotel in Cedar Rapids and being beset by fans of Trump. Now, can you tell my listeners what happened next can you just lay out the story for us? Yeah, this is the Iowa caucuses. This is, you know, this is uh, just to set the scene here a little bit. I mean, at this point, Trump had been talking about running for president for over 20 years, right? Longer than that. I mean, they, the first sort of teases about running for president are back in 88. Um, uh, you know, and I, and I and I address some of this in the book. I mean, when he when he talks about it again in 2000 and then in 2012, I actually think looking back on it that he was more serious about running than, than people gave him credit for at the time. I mean, he, he was sort of dismissed as a showman and, 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 and promotion, and it was all big, big, a big part of his own kind of marketing and self-promotion. I think it's all the piece for Donald Trump. I don't, I don't think it was so clearly just a, a, a self-promotion I, and, and the things he was saying back then were so similar to what he was saying in 2020 that I actually think that he was, he, that, you know, had the reform party, you know, held up in, in, um, in 2000, I think he, I think he would have run. Anyway, that that's all of a kind of prologue to get to uh, 2016 in um, in Iowa, right? Like this is the first time that Trump's name is actually going to be on a presidential ballot here, and uh, it's in the it's in the caucuses. Uh, and Jared kind of Jared has kind of swooped in at this point. He's he comes in a little bit late um, in, into the campaign, and and he and Ivanka get dispatched to one of the caucus sites. In Iowa, a, 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 a hotel uh, ballroom, essentially, and they show up, and of course, like it's Trump world, right? So there's nothing, there's no nothing has been set up, nothing has been prepared, and they look around and 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 they're horrified, right? They see all these other campaigns with tables set up, with swag, with uh, you know different instructions on how to caucus and and uh, stickers and and bullet points on their on their candidates, and they have nothing, right? They have nothing, like. And, and, and so they start getting people coming up and asking them how they can help and what Trump is, you know, how to caucus for Trump. And they have no idea. Right. I mean, this is like um, someone described it to me as kind of like a, it's like a Shit's Creek, you know, the, the, t- the TV show Shit's Creek. It's like a Shit's Creek moment with 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 the Kushners and the Trumps. Uh, you know, Jared pulls out his phone and Googles literally, how do you caucus? Uh, Ivanka had recorded a, a how do you caucus video a couple of days earlier, but but she had just read from the script, right? I mean, she hadn't um, kind of internalized this or, or certainly thought that she was going to have to explain it to other people. And and so they're sort of beside themselves and really furious, you know, not at Donald Trump, right? Not at the candidate who's 
responsibility this is, whose campaign this is, they turn their fury on Corey Lewandowski and Chuck Laudner. And this is where, um, you know, this is really where, where, where Jared starts, the, the, the Jared and Corey story starts. And, and literally the next day, Corey, or excuse me, Jared reaches out to one of his friends to look for someone to replace Corey with. And the name he gets back is Bill Stepien. Yeah, look, uh, you know, I heard a little bit of a different story. I heard that Ivanka was auctioning off hair extensions, you know, her hair extensions. And um, that was uh, a big that was a big hit amongst the Trump followers, you know, to have a piece of Ivanka's hair extensions. But listen, of course, of (laughs) of course, Jared fought with with Corey. Corey's a fucking asshole. Corey is completely inept. He's inept in every aspect of his life with no capability. Basically, he was nothing more than a travel agent setting up, you know, um, like a um, an advanced team. Mm-hmm. That's really what he was with um, Dave Bossy. They were an advanced team. Corey didn't know anything. He didn't have any experience in anything. And he turned out to be exactly the fucking loser today that he was back then. And nothing made me happier than that day that... Don, Ivanka, Eric, myself went into Trump and we got the blessing to fire him. And then we fired him in one of the worst ways. We call him in. He's sitting down, chest puffed up, thinking, you know, that he's the, you know, the the greatest thing since sliced bread. When Don just blurts right out, listen, don't don't make yourself comfortable. You're fucking fired. Get out. And then we had, you know, Don Cheech, Matt Calamari, you know, escort him out. We took all his computers. I then went ahead. I went through all his emails. I found out that he was the guy leaking shit to everybody about Ivanka mm-hmm. and Jared's marital relationship. There was allegations by Corey to some uh, press that Jared was um, was not straight, that he had a boyfriend on. The, I mean, you can't imagine the damage that this ass clown, you know, tried to do. And this is this is to the son-in-law of his boss. That's yeah. how stupid well, that this the, guy what was, is. What but was the straw very, there, Michael? What was the straw that like the I mean, Trump was Trump liked Corey, right? I mean, it was like kind of in a sense two peas in a pod there. I mean, what was it that 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 Trump signed off? No, on? no. No, what was it? it, that, it wasn't like, that what, the what was two that? Okay, that might not be the right analogy. But what was it that like sort of that tipped Trump to to give to give the green light to fire Corey back in twenty sixteen? When when basically when basically all four of us walked in and said he's got to go, mm-hmm. and I was able to show him the proof that it was him who's basically leaking the information about you know about the family, about Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But what Trump liked about Corey was that he was so dirt cheap. As a campaign manager that, I mean, I think he was he was making something like five thousand dollars a week Mm. and he couldn't get anybody else. And he never thought that he was going to win or that he was going to make it to the, you know, to become the Republican nominee. So therefore, you know, he was going to keep Corey on, which was cheap for as long as possible. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Hunger Games, The Matrix, Pain and Gain, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Jennifer Lawrence, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. 
But I do want to ask you, very few people know what happened behind the scenes with the Hunter Biden laptop mm-hmm. story and how its authors, right? Here are three clowns, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, and here's the name that you don't hear much of. I happen to know him personally, Arthur Schwartz, that they were desperate for this imprimatur of the Wall Street Journal to give their so-called October surprise credence. Can you tell my listeners how they thought that this was going to go and why the journal ultimately rejected the story? Yeah, sure. I mean, there the um, I was approached by some folks, uh, not Steve and not Rudy, who were concerned that the, the Hunter story had become had kind of jumped the shark and that, that it was getting too much attention by the conservative media that to the point where the mainstream media wouldn't give any of it a second look that 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 had already become. Uh, taken on this sort of imprimatur of a conspiracy theory and and overwrought and that um, uh, and and they what they wanted was someone um, with some credibility uh, some journalistic credibility to look at, at their at new documents um, and say there is something here so I went and 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 sat down with them and what they had was a man that um, America hadn't met yet by the name of Tony Bobolinsky. And all of Bobolinsky's text mm-hmm. messages and emails and, and documents, um, which was really uh, this fascinating uh, look under the hood of uh, international deal making and its embryonic stage between you know a pair of really young, ambitious men and in, 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 uh, politically connected men in, in, in two of the you know in, in, the, in the in two of the world's economic superpowers, uh, Hunter Biden being one and. Uh, and some folks in, in, in China connected to well-connected folks in China uh, on the other side. I mean, and, and, and as someone from the Wall Street Journal, I mean, it was really some hair raising stuff here on uh, trying to get these Chinese nationals kids into private school in New York. That was hard to that, that was hard to get into or, um, you know, apartment shopping and these these meetings in, the, in these you know exotic locales all around the world. And again, as a as as a, as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, I mean, this was I you know this was a great, a really interesting story um, that our readers would eat up. But what it wasn't was a smoking gun that Joe Biden had necessarily done anything wrong. And I told him that, you know, I told him if you if you are interested in, I, I can go back to my editors and pitch this story about Hunter Biden and 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 what you know because Hunter Biden had been tra- trading on the family name for decades. I mean, that's. You know that's part of the public record. I mean, he was working in Washington for years when his when his dad was a senator. Uh, you know, uh, do, doing lobbying type type of work and PR work. You know, uh, in 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 politics and policy. But if you want a story on how Joe Biden's a dirty crook and how he you know funneled millions of dollars to his son, like that's not what this shows. But it was interesting to me because they what they told me was that no 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 you if the Wall Street Journal thinks anything here. Is interesting. That's worth it to us because what they had were, were concerned about was that um, no one was paying attention, any attention to it, right? And if and maybe if the journal paid attention to a bit of it, that might, I think, in their minds, uh, you know, give some strength for others to start pulling on. But what happens is like you know, again, this is just like a, a, a bigger metaphor for Trump world because the left hand's not talking to the right hand, and meanwhile, while they're doing trying, you know, they're, while they're trying to sort of thread the needle here you know, go through a rigorous editing process that the journal offers. Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani were, were dumping the quote unquote Hunter laptop on the New York Post and just, um, you know, uh, having them print the whole thing. So the whole thing blows up. 
Uh, Trump blurts out on a, on a call with reporters that the Wall Street Journal is working on a Hunter Biden story. And, and what it does is forces our hand to write the exact story that, you know, my sources didn't want, which was uh, that there was no evidence that Joe Biden yeah. had any role in, 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 the, in the creation of these businesses. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because one of the more sinister figures in the Trump White House and one that never wavered or fell from grace, just, which blew me away, was Stephen mm-hmm. Miller. Right. Yet in the aftermath of Trump's election loss, he seems to have evaporated like his hair right <laughs> on television from public view. Do you know where he's gone and what you think he'll do next? Because in all fairness, Stephen Miller, I think, is from my hometown. He is a self-loathing Jew. He is a white supremacist based on every single thing that he ever wrote and had Trump write mm-hmm. um, or wrote on behalf of Trump. Um, where is he and what the heck is he going to do? Well, he is doing a uh, he's working on a, at a think tank here, starting up his own think tank here in Washington, um, you know, trying to. Um, Use the legal system here to protect some of Trump's policies and and the, you know the administration's uh, actions. Um, I, I didn't realize that you guys are from this. You guys are both from the same town in, in California. No, I think he's from Long Island, isn't he? No, I, I thought he grew up in California, but maybe I had that wrong. I don't know where he grew up, but okay. anyway, wherever the hell he grew up, he's still a fucking racist. Now I've heard from many sources that the book that Trump fears the most mm-hmm. is from Kellyanne Conway. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think that he would fear a book from her, one of his most steadfast supporters? And I want to just mm-hmm. be clear. I knew Kellyanne longer than I know mm-hmm. Trump. I was the one who brought her mm-hmm. in when guys like Kushner didn't want her. Reince Priebus originally didn't want mm-hmm. her. Um, Manafort didn't want her around. Steve Bannon didn't want her around. No, none of them wanted her around. I ended up getting her brought in. Why do you think that he fears her the most? I don't know. I, have, I haven't heard that, actually. Um, you know, it'll, I, Kellyanne, I, I'm looking forward to her book. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Me it could be even she's, uh, you know, she's I, I bet she's a very good writer. I mean, she's a she, she's she's a good quote. Right. I mean, she's she's pretty clever. She's pretty quick witted. She was part of this movement long before Trump was right. I mean, she was she had her finger on the pulse of these. This sort of uh, corner of the, um, the Republican Party for 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 decades. This, you know, I, yeah, I don't know what which direction she's going to take this book. It seems to me that she could take it in a few different directions, but it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, let me ask mm-hmm. you this. Now, your book also shows what an outsized role that Sean Hannity and Fox News played in the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Is there an example from your reporting that exemplifies how much power Hannity held in the administration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a thread throughout the book is 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 Trump's uh, um, sort of symbiotic relationship with with Fox News. And he really does see them as a as an arm of his political operation. And and, you know, and and is furious uh, at several points in 2020 when he does, when he feels like he doesn't have, you know, their 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 total loyalty uh, to him, when it comes to Hannity, um, yeah, he comes up several times in the book. Early on, I, I do document how what a role he played in some of the birtherism issues in 2012. Just in the fact that um, when Trump started mentioning it, I, I again detail in the book here how often Hannity talked about it, and it was literally night after night after night after night. You know, bringing asking guests about it, bringing up on his own, having his own segments on it for weeks on end until you know, really, Trump was at the top of the polls um, before he bowed out and decided to do a, another year of um, 
another season of Apprentice. But I think the most uh, the most interesting example in the book of Hannity's role is at the end of the race when, um, according to my sources, uh, he actually pens, uh, he scripts his own ad for the Trump campaign to run. Um, uh, Hannity's furious about the 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 the, the, the TV ads for. Trump at that point, um, which I actually never really quite figured out why, because it didn't seem to me that the TV advertising really ever meant anything for Trump, good or bad. But but he's furious that that that, that Biden is um, on the air all over in Florida, where where he's living at the time and um, pens his own ad. And it does. I mean, it's Hannity denies this uh, on the record that he, that he had any role. But um, I have uh, multiple sources on this. I mean, campaign documents that, that ref- directly refer to the ad that Hannity wrote. Uh, and that the ad that you know that, that Hannity said that this was the best one he's seen, um, and it is almost verbatim um, what he is talking about on his show at the time, and it, and it, and it's stunning, right? I mean, the idea of a of a of a of a news uh, anchor penning a ad for a presidential candidate, and then to top it all off, the ad runs in one place. In the final three weeks, they read ad only runs on Hannity's show, so it's this sort of like weird kind of. Um, circular loop uh, echo chamber here, right? That, that I don't know who the ad was supposed. To, yeah, yeah. One of my one of my favorite stories of all time was when Corey Lewandowski went after Hannity during the campaign, and he told Trump that Hannity's not on your side. This is how fragile of an ego Donald Trump has, mm-hmm. right? Corey, the moron Lewandowski, tells Trump that Hannity is not on your side. He's actually a supporter of Ted Cruz, which sends Trump into an apoplectic rage. Mm. And he won't talk to him anymore. So Hannity calls me fucking crying like a baby. You know, why? why uh, uh, Michael, you got to fix this guy. So I turn around and I tell Sean to come to the office and come see me. And Hannity shows up to the office mm. and I walk him into Trump's office. And I said, boss, look, you know, I fucking hate Corey. Right. But it's not true. And Sean wants to explain to you exactly why he can't only talk about you. Ted Cruz was leading the Republican nomination at the time. And so he had to. But he is on your side. Mm -hmm. But he can't seem like he's only on your side other than otherwise it makes him look disingenuous as a as a host of a show. At which point in time that their relationship then came back and then to see how ultimately it ended up, you know, um, doing so well. And Sean became a big part, basically Mm -hmm. calling Trump on a daily basis or Trump calling him. What do you think I should say? What should I do? No, Sean, I don't like that. It's not good. Sean saying, no, it, it is based upon my understanding. And he became a sounding board, you know, for you know, for Trump and so on. But, Mike, I have two quick questions for you that I'm hoping that you can answer. And as we know, as I told you at the beginning, Mm. the hour goes by fast. We have so much to cover because your book is just that good. But your book has created, you're welcome, your book has created a deluge of press surrounding a number of its more frightening anecdotes um, from Trump's comments about Hitler Mm. to Secretary of State Pompeo's fear that he would start a war Mm. to his orders to General Milley to shoot civil rights protesters and more. Now, I'm curious, of all of the stories in your book, right, and each one I find fascinating, which one did you find the most frightening when you first heard it and told, and then why? Yeah. 
No, it's a good question. I appreciate that, Michael. Um, I mean, you, you hit on the on the on the big ones. I mean, I uh, the one that you didn't mention here is um, is Trump's reaction when um, news leaks by our friend uh, uh, Maggie Haberman that uh, he had spent the night in the bunker when the protests got too close to the White House, and this is really what drives a lot of the initial um, response to the protests, right? Uh, and he's talking about shooting the protesters when uh, he, you know, he marches out uh, to St. John's. Meanwhile, what we didn't know was that he, and that this had uh, animated Trump for days and that he, the way he was speaking about the leaker and hunting down the leaker, uh, whoever, you know, uh, you know, did, uh, you know, um, uh, was disloyal enough to, to tell this story was that he wanted them executed, that he viewed it as treason. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't something that he said once. And this, uh, uh, the amount of time this took uh, for his chief of staff, Ben Mark Meadows, um, to respond to um, Trump's repeated inquiries about whether the leaker had been found and um, what was being done to find the leaker. I mean, this is what people, when they look back on this time in June, around June 1, that's what they the staff around Trump, I was shocked that that's what they remember was how furious he was about the leak of the bunker, not about the protests, not about, you know, the uh, the violence on the streets um, or any of that stuff, but, but who had um, committed treason in his mind and deserved to be executed. Uh, now, again, the people I talked to weren't sure that that was serious, but I also know that none of them asked him to find out. And that was that was really one of the, the, the more shocking moments that I had um, uncovered in the reporting for this book. Yeah, I could see him going, you know, crazy. Who's the leaker? I got to find this leaker. I mean, because he's just he's so stupid. But, Mike, my last mm-hmm. question to you. And again, you know, like I said, time just goes by so fast. Uh, and I'm actually enjoying this conversation a lot. Thank you. you know, one last story from my listeners mm-hmm. that sums up Trump's inability to grasp the enormity of the COVID crisis and his inability to focus on his job. And that's around his agonizing about what the logo for the Republican National Committee yeah. should look mm-hmm. like, despite it being six months away. If you could tell my listeners, please recount what happened there and give them a backdoor yeah. view of what was really going on here in this crazy man's mind. Yeah, this is the spring of uh, 2020. And we are in, um, you know, the, the, the full scope of the pandemic is coming into view here. I mean, multiple states are in lockdowns at this point. Schools have been canceled uh, and Trump's in Mar-a-Lago and, and doing what he what he what he normally does. I, I think you're pr- probably pretty well, well aware of this, too, Michael. And in moments of stress, Trump kind of high, disappears into the details of something, you know, into the minutia of uh, of kind of random um, um, uh, random things, and in order to kind of master it and control and feel that sense of control, and and what was happening here in this moment was the um, again while COVID is raging all you know around the country, he's 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 focused in very acutely to the logo for the Republican National Convention and showing people. Uh, in Mar-a-Lago, uh, who have come to meet with him and, and uh, you know, the, in, in front of the vice president and, and others, uh, you know, shouldn't this have, you know, not, not four stars, it should be five stars around the elephant, five stars, like a, like a, like a five-star hotel, you know, and these are the sorts of things that he's, he, he, he's focused in on. Um, 
you know, and and what was revealing to me about that anecdote again was 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 that the people around him were were stunned that this was what he was spending his time on, and you know, not that and you know, and that he'd become you know dangerous to the country, not just in the physical sense, um, but when it came to COVID, you know, he risked his own health and was willing to put the own the, the country's health at risk um, in order to you know, uh, spend time on some of, you know, on, on this sort of random minutia that, that you could be easily left to a low level staffer. Something I talk about a lot in my book is narcissistic sociopathic disorder. It's just a perfect example, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't care about anyone or anything. If it's 608,000 dead Americans or, you know, a million, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to mm-hmm. him. It doesn't. Even the fact that people who were big supporters of him had passed away from this COVID, he still will continue his path because whatever he believes, he will try to make right Mm -hmm. by repeating his position over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And then using the likes of the Tucker Carlson's, the Sean Hannity, the Fox News, the OANN's, the Newsmax in order to justify and to promote, you know, his position. But, Mike, I really want to thank you for your time, for your insight. Good luck with the book. It's fabulous. I certainly recommend it to everybody listening. Hope to see you again very, very soon, my Sounds friend. good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Michael Bender, nothing in his tale of Trump's final year particularly surprised me. We already knew the man was a racist, authoritarian, possibly insane, and most definitely unfit for office. Some folks even said it before he was president. I warned that Trump would never commit to a peaceful transition of power, and lo and behold, he has continued to try and overturn the election. In the book, we hear story after story, recounting how sources were horrified, terrified, and disgusted. My question is why now? Where were all these people who were in a position to do anything about it at the time? I know it's easy to criticize. People ask me the same thing. But I've made up for my moral failings by taking Trump to task at every opportunity. Where were the General Mark Milley's when it truly mattered to testify at Trump's impeachment so he could be barred from seeking office forever? This is a man who likened the president to Hitler. You'd think he'd want to see that man removed from the premises, if even possible. But I guess the best we can hope for are these heroic accounts of compromised people doing the best they can under terrible circumstances. What's truly upsetting to me, though, aren't the revelations that all sound vaguely plausible, as in, of course Trump was going to do that. But it's his chronicle of these front row Joes that keeps the book from being just another juicy tell-all. Here we learn the aura and power that Trump's MAGA rallies held for these devoted followers. How he made them feel special and a part of something larger. Ultimately, though, he betrayed them and sold them down the river and, frankly, killed them. One story that sticks out to me beyond the rest is that of front row Joe named Randall Thumb, who got COVID but refused to take a test or go to the hospital because he didn't want to increase the caseload under Trump's watch. These folks were sold a bill of goods, but continued to support a man who has no problem ripping them off and watching them die in record numbers from a virus that he could have slowed down and whose vaccine he politicized. You didn't win this election, and you should have been banned from running ever again. But we are, we are, so this is best that we can do. And thanks for listening. 
Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. 